Hello, and welcome back to Astronomy News with the Cosmic Companion. This week, we have a special double interview as we welcome Dr. Richard T. from the Center for Astrophysics to the show, talking about finding the first moon ever discovered in another solar system. We're also going to talk with Dr. Demide Farnocia, uh, asteroid dynamicist at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, about the asteroid Bindu, which could be headed for a collision with Earth, but probably not. We're also going to have a look at an, at an exploding star we take a look at the development of robotic attendants aboard space stations and colonies of the future. The asteroid Bennu has a 1 in 2700 chance of striking Earth in 2182, according to a new study announced by NASA on the 11th of August. This asteroid, half a kilometer in diameter, was recently visited by the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft. That robotic observatory spent about two years at Bennu before collecting a sample and heading back to Earth. And it's going to arrive back home on the 24th of September, 2023. A close pass to Earth in 2135 will determine whether or not Bennu will collide with our planet roughly 50 years later. We talked with Dr. Devide Farnocia, uh, asteroid dynamicist at Jet Propulsion Laboratories, about these findings. So uh, just for those people who may not be aware, can you just give a little brief rundown of what it is that we know about Bennu and what it is? Yeah, so Bennu is an asteroid in the solar system. Uh, it was discovered in 1999 and is one of the so-called potentially hazardous asteroids, which means that the asteroid is fairly sizable. It's about half kilometer in diameter, and it's got an orbit that can bring it close to the Earth. And so those are really the objects that we want to pay a lot of attention to in order to establish whether there is a possibility for an impact. Hmm. Okay, and what is it that this new study has revealed? Well, as I said, since Ben is a potentially hazardous asteroid, there is a lot of interest in computing its precise trajectory and assessing whether there is a possible impact down the road. Uh, and Ben was also the target of a uh, space mission, it's called OSIRIS-REx mission, that in uh, uh, 2018 arrived at Bennu. It stayed in orbit for about two years. And in October 2020, went down to the surface of Bennu, collected a sample, and it's on its way back to the Earth to give us the sample so that we can analyze it. And there is a lot of interest on Bennu because, as I said, um, the, the possibility of an impact is something we want to carefully assess. And the fact that we've had a mission allowed us to collect a lot of useful data that allows us to essentially improve what we know. And so what do we, what do we know? What is the chance of an impact uh, when? Okay, so what happens is that we have a very exquisite knowledge of the trajectory of Bennu all the way to 2135. That's more than 100 years into the future. But in 2135, Ben is going to come close to the Earth. And even though there is no possibility of an impact, 
the gravity of the Earth is going to nudge its trajectory. And the outcome of that encounter and the trajectory after the encounter is highly sensitive on the position of Bennu before that encounter. And among the possible outcomes, you have possible impacts. So with the, with the data collected by the Zaris Rex mission, we were able to refine the model for its trajectory and constrain the position of Bennu in 2135 in such a way that we could compute um, the impact probability and identify the possible pathways to impact. The overall impact probability is only 0.06%, which I like to put the other way. There is a 99.94% probability that Bennu is not on an impact trajectory. So there is no particular cause for concern, but we know what the possible pathways to impact are and we can keep track of Bennu until we get you know, the final answer, it's gonna miss or it's gonna hit. Chances are it's gonna miss and we're gonna be able to rule that out at some point in the future. So it's probably, you know, remember when uh, Skylab came back to earth, you know, there were people out there, you know, buying and selling, you know, Skylab helmets so you didn't get hit by debris. <laughs> so <laughs> probably no need to go out and buy yourself a be new, no, be new impact no, no, no. just yet. No, you don't need anything, any particular protection from Bennu. <laughs> and, if any, and even if it were to, to, to happen, it's so far into the future that it's not really a problem for our generation. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, you know, we talk about, you know, the 2135 encounter and, um, you know, people talk about gravitational keyholes. Can you yeah, tell us a key, little bit about what that is and what that means. Yeah, so essentially, keyholes are a, a, a fancy concept that the orbital dynamicists came up with. Essentially, as I said, the trajectory of Bennu after the twenty one thirty five encounter is highly sensitive to the position of Bennu before the encounter, and so before the encounter, you can actually identify the locations in space. That if Bennu were to pass through one of these locations, then the trajectory will be modified by the gravity of the Earth by just the right amount to put it on a collision trajectory. So we can pre-compute those locations and we call them keyholes so that in 2135, we can check whether Bennu goes through one of them or he's going to miss them. Hmm. That's so fascinating. So what was OSIRIS-REx able to bring to your study of OPM? Well... Well, before the Zeresrex mission, we had the main limitation in being able to predict the location of Ben in 2135 was this so-called Yarkovsky effect, which is a gravitational perturbation caused by sunlight from the sun reaching the asteroid and warming up the day side of the asteroid. Then the asteroid is rotating, and so the night side cools down, the heat gets released, and that causes a gentle push on the asteroid. And... This effect is really small. I like the analogy that on Bennu, the Yarkovsky effect is equivalent to the weight of three grapes on Earth. So it's really small. But over time, its effect builds up and you can have a significant effect by the time you get to 2135. The benefit of having a space mission like OSIRIS-REx arriving to Bennu is that it allowed us to get all the information about the asteroids, such as size, diameter, uh, and the shape, mass, rotation state, surface and thermal properties, all the ingredients we needed to model this acceleration correctly. And that greatly improved our model for the future trajectory of Bennu. The other side is that uh, from the ground, we were tracking the spacecraft. When we send a mission out there, we talk to the spacecraft so that we can ask the spacecraft to do the you know, 
to collect the data that we need to do our scientific investigations. As a side product, you get a strong constraint on the position of Bennu relative to the Earth. You can measure the distance between the Earth and Bennu, which at times was large, as large as the distance between the Earth and the Sun. So it's pretty far away. You can measure that with an uncertainty of two meters, which is about the height of a basketball player. Mm. So that's absolutely incredible. And, and we can use this data to really nail the position of Bennu and that as well allows us to predict much better where Ben is going to be in 2135. Uh, and in March of 2019, OSIRIS-REx found, you know, large boulders were covering the surface of Bennu and that the body was also rotating at an increasingly faster rate. Does any of, yes. that, does any of that affect how it affects its path around the solar system? Yeah, yeah. so that's the so-called YORP effect, and that's changing the rotation state of the asteroid over time. Uh, that, in theory, does affect the Yarkovsky acceleration, which in turn affects the motion of Bennu. But we did the math and figured out that that effect is too small to matter. So if you put it in, we're going to end up in the same spot in 2135. So that's not a significant effect on the trajectory of Bennu. But that was a very good question. Thanks so much. And um, now, of course, the Bennu's, uh, excuse me, OSIRIS-REx is now headed back to Earth from Bennu uh, and carrying, carrying little pieces of it for, for study here on Earth. What are, you, what are you hoping to learn from that? Well, I guess, you know, asteroids are kind of uh, the, the remnants of the formation of the solar system. And Bennu is considered to be one of the most primitive asteroids out there. And so collecting a sample can give us clues about the initial conditions of the solar system, what kind of material was out there. That's clearly one of the most interesting scientific investigations. From a planetary defense perspective, you can actually analyze the sample and the material to get a sense of how an asteroid like Bennu could react um, to a deflection mission. Let's say you send a kinetic impactor, which would have a spacecraft just smashing to the asteroid and perturb its motion. What would be the, the exact reaction of the asteroid? You need to know that in order to know whether your deflection attempt would be successful. And so lab experiments on this sample can actually inform that kind of analysis. Hmm. And so let's say, of course, now this is the obvious question. Let's say, you know, we come to 2135 and sure enough, you know, this thing is being news headed right towards us in 50 odd years. I mean, obviously we have no idea what the technology of the time would be, but if you had to do it with today's technology, what would you do to try to, Try to deflect this thing. Well, let's say let's say we get really lazy for the next hundred years and we don't develop any new technology, right? And so let's see what we have right now. I think one of the most promising approaches would be the one that I just mentioned is a kinetic impactor, which would just be you send a spacecraft at a high velocity, hitting the asteroid and pushing it a little bit and uh, and deflecting its trajectory. And since you have fifty years from twenty one thirty five to twenty one eighty two, which is the most significant impact chance left, there will be plenty of time to design such a mission and have the correction to the trajectory accumulate over time in such a way that they would miss in 2182. But there is other options like ion beam deflection that could be used, a gravity tractor. Uh, given the amount of time available, several decades, there's certainly 
a lot of possibilities for deflecting venom. And if it were to, and if it were to hit, are there any thoughts on, you know, what sort of damage it could do? Well, let, let's let's remind ourselves that the probability of that happening is really, really small. Really small. Uh, said that if an asteroid of the size of Bennu were to hit the Earth, it would certainly lead to considerable damage. We're below the threshold for, you know, extinction level kind of impacts, but it's certainly big enough to cause some continent scale devastation. So we certainly want to avoid these kind of events and we're working in that regard. That's great. And finally, what's what's next in your study of this cool little um, semi-hazard semi-hazardous asteroid? For Bennu, I for Bennu, I think we nailed the trajectory for, for a little while. I'm Really looking forward uh, to knowing what the analysis of the sample is gonna is gonna teach us. Uh, I'm not gonna be involved in that part of the analysis. That's not really my area of expertise. But I really look forward to knowing what's gonna happen and what we're gonna learn. In terms of the trajectory, it's gonna take some time before the uncertainty grows again enough for new data to actually be able to improve our orbit knowledge. There is a possible close approach in 2037 that would allow radar observations from the ground, and that could be the next time we have a significant improvement on, on the trajectory. And at that time, we're gonna fold in this data and uh, compare with our predictions, improve our orbit knowledge, and see what we can learn about the 2135 position and the trajectory after the 2135 encounter. The RS-OPI binary star system has erupted in a NOVA seen in the skies of Earth this week, offering amateur astronomers around the globe a chance to view a new star. This pair of stars erupts in such an explosion once every 15 or 20 years as material from the larger, cooler red star falls onto a small white dwarf. When these deposits build up to a critical point, the gas erupts into a bright flash, which then slowly cools over the course of several months. A software environment designed to control autonomous robots in space, called Isaac, recently passed its first tests aboard the International Space Station. Guiding robots called AstroBees, the software was able to successfully diagnose a buildup of carbon dioxide as part of a test designed by NASA. The robots were also able to map a room while avoiding obstacles and experiencing pre-planned communication outages with operators on the ground. In the future, Isaac could allow robots to care for space stations and colonies on Moon and Mars when humans are not around. Looking deep into the universe, we see backwards in time. And the oldest light in the universe holds secrets to how everything around us will, one day, end. Meanwhile, stars, planets, and galaxies dance in an intricate ballet, occasionally giving birth to life. We are fledgling species, just beginning to visit other worlds. We are a way for the universe to understand itself, 
the Cosmic Companion strives to bring the universe down to Earth. And we depend on your help to make it happen. For information on subscriptions and ways to donate to this program, please visit thecosmiccompanion.net. Thank you. Next up, we're going to talk with Dr. Richard T. from the Center for Astrophysics, discussing his work discovering the first moon ever found in another star system. This week on Astronomy News with the Cosmic Companion, we're happy to talk with Dr. Richard Teague. He is an astrophysicist at the Center for Astrophysics, and he's recently taken part in an exciting new discovery, the first definitive evidence of a moon found in another solar system. Welcome to the show, Richard. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, well, first of all, uh, congratulations on finding this moon uh, orbiting PDS-70C. So I know it's early, but what do we know about it so far? Ah, so this is, um, yeah, it's a really exciting system. So we've known for the last couple of years that this disk hosts a couple of planets in there, PDS-70B and PDS-70C. And we actually found them from a different technique than we're using here, where we're looking at emission lines so we're seeing the very hot shocks of gas accreting onto these planets. So we knew they were there for a long time, but what we wanted to try and do was find this cool millimeter-sized dust around those planets, these so-called circumplanetary disks, which is where we believe these moons should be forming in there. So now that we knew that these planets sort of existed from these infrared observations, we went back with longer wavelength submillimeter observations to try and find where these, uh, where these planets had those disks there. So we already have a good idea of the orbits of these planets. We have some handle on how massive they are. So we think PDS-70C can range between five and 15 times the size of Jupiter. So it's a really big range, but these things are much more massive than compared to the planets in our own solar system. But we know that ordering is sort of similar to Uranus and Neptune. So we think that this system is an analog to what our own solar system might've looked like during its formation. Fascinating. And so we know right now of roughly 4,400 exoplanets, and even that database is pretty big. What attracted you, what attracted you to this system in particular to look at? So, so this is really some of the youngest planets we can detect. When we typically search for planets, we're using techniques such as the transit transiting curve, where the planets blocks the light from the star, or the rotational velocity method, where the planets will make a small wobble in its host star. But both of these techniques are only sensitive to fully formed planets, where there's no longer any circum circumstellar material around. PDS-70 is still a very young source, and so this big ring that you can see in the image behind you is this circumstellar disk. And this is all the material that's still being fed onto these planets, so that it's forming their atmospheres. So PDS-70 is really unique in that it's the youngest set of planets we can detect. And that's really going to allow us to test our models of planet formation and really try and understand the diversity in the more mature exoplanets that we're, we've found a lot of. That's fascinating. So could you just take us through the discovery process a little bit and how you went from beginning to saying, we're pretty sure this is an exoplanet. 
So this is really, um, so as I said, we knew this system had these two planets in already. There was a large survey done on a telescope called the Very Large Telescope that was just trying to find um, signatures of planets looking for this very hot gas. So we knew where we were looking. And then we went to ALMA, which is this large submillimeter interometer, and we requested lots of time to try and search for the dust around these planets. And so that turned out being several programs that we had to combine together. Um, so lots of different data sets to really achieve the sensitivity that we need to see these very small and faint objects. Um, and it was just a case of making sure that we combine this data in the correct way um, to really tease out these very small details. Because you can see that the circumplanetary disk is very, very small and dim compared to the circumstellar disk. And so trying to make sure that you could see one in the shadow of the other was really the big technical challenge here. So we had the data for sort of a year before the paper was published, but it really took that amount of time to verify that the images that we were returning were actually um, what we were really seeing. So we had to run lots of different tests, make sure our assumptions were valid, and that the results didn't vary depending on what the assumptions were. Hmm. And, but now we are still, you folks are still looking to answer a lot of questions about yep. how exo, exo moons form in other systems. What are we able to learn about, about that process from this discovery? So because this is the first discovery or detection of a circumplanetary disk, this is really giving us our first data point to test our understanding of these models. So for the last 10 years or so, we've had a fairly good idea of how we think moons should be forming, but we haven't actually had any observations to test that. So now when we look at PDS-70C, we see that the circumplanetary disk looks very similar to how our models would predict. That looks like a scaled down uh, circumstellar disk. And so from these observations, we get that single data point. We can understand, for example, how big they are and how massive compared to their host planet. We can see how radially extended they are, and we can start to try and measure how much mass is in them. So for example, in a disk around PGS-70C, we find that it has about one to 3% of the Earth, uh, Earth's mass around it. So we know that's enough material to form a couple of moons. So we think it's very likely that a disk like this could form moons. Um, but we really need to go back and look at other other wavelengths to really understand how much mass is there to really then test our moon formation models. Wow, that's fascinating. And so how common do you think this process is? I mean, you know, back in back years ago, we thought, oh, maybe, you know, I heard estimates of, oh, maybe a quarter of stars have planets around them, maybe a third. And now we know there's probably more planets than there are stars. Yeah. So how common do, do you think that the formation of exomoons is in other systems? So that, that's a really good question. So I think on one hand, as you said, we know that planet formation is very likely. So there should be to zero's order as much moon formation going on as there is planet formation. But one particularly interesting point about the PGS-70 system is that we know there are two planets there, B and C, but we can only really see a circumplanetary disk around C very nicely. We see that there is some material around B, but it's much, much fainter, which suggests the disk is very different from C, even though it's the same system. So that really questions how efficient this moon formation process is. Even though we form these two planets, there seems to be something different between the way these disks are forming and then how much material will be available for the moon formation afterwards. So having systems like PDS-70C is going to really help answer this question of how 
um, how much moon formation we think there's going to be. You're listening to Astronomy News with the Cosmic Companion, a podcast focused on making science accessible to everyone, including weekly interviews with groundbreaking scientists. We depend on support from fans like you, helping us bring science news and education directly to listeners around the globe. Visit us at thecosmiccompanion.net forward slash support for information on subscriptions and other ways you can help support this program. Subscriptions start at just 99 cents a month. Show your love of astronomy and space exploration by visiting thecosmiccompanion.net forward slash support today. Hi there, this is James Maynard from The Cosmic Companion. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, our podcast is put out through Anchor FM. If you've ever wanted to have to your own podcast, they're a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, I mean, Anchor gives you a chance to uh, put get your podcast together with all the tools in one place. And um, you can do it from your phone or a computer. And they're going to help you get distributed out to all the major platforms. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, you name it. And so, best of all, Anchor's all free. How cool, huh? Anyway, if you want to check it out, go download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Clear skies. And so why is, why is it that PBS-70B is so different from its companion? So this is a really good question. It's one that we're trying to answer at the moment. The working hypothesis is really um, that we think PBS-70C is stealing or blocking the material from the outer disk, the circumstellar disk, this big ring. That's secreting onto PBS-70C, and none of it is being allowed to transfer inwards to PBS-70B, which is on a short orbit. So we think this is sort of analogous to how Jupiter affects mm. our own solar system, where that sort of made a barrier between the outer solar system and the inner terrestrial planets. We think this is a very similar thing happening in PGS-70, where PGS-70C is acting as a barrier to PGS-70B. That's, that, is, that is fascinating. And so just going a little step further with this analogy, um, the two planets in the PGS-70 system you know, have been compared to Jupiter and Saturn in our yeah. own system. Can you tell us a little bit about how the two pairs of worlds might be similar or different to each other? So we think they're very similar in the way in what we call sort of the system architecture, how far away they are from their host star and their relative masses. So as I said, PGS-70C is much more massive than Jupiter, but then if both the planets are more massive, then they can interact in the same way that the planets in our own solar system do. So we have a very good laboratory now to test sort of the stability of these planetary systems to understand how the gravitational forces of one planet is going to alter the orbits of the other planet. And we can try and understand how stable those are, whether they're going to do a lot of migrating or whether we think that's going to be the architecture that we see for a long time. And we know that within our solar system, there was a lot of shuffling around of planets. We have this grand tax scenario where Jupiter moves in and then moves back out and is scattering everything around. So because we have the same sort of mass ratios and the same sort of spatial scales in PGS-70, it really gives us an excellent laboratory to test these sort of migration models and how the planets can influence one another. 
That's fascinating. So when you're looking at this system, are there any hints or signs so far of smaller planets like rocky terrestrial planets to accompany these giants? Not quite rocky yet. I think with the current techniques that we're using, unfortunately, we're only really sensitive to the very big planets, so Jupiter masses and larger. We're hoping that with the next generation of telescopes, so things like the James Webb Space Telescope or the European Southern Observatory's extremely large uh, telescope, which is this 40-meter huge machine, we're going to have much more sensitivity to these smaller planets. And so we're really excited to use these instruments to push into this lower end and smaller terrestrial planet regime. And um, in our own system, Jupiter and Saturn uh, have the vast majority of moons that we find in our family of planets. Um, do we think that that's similar, that, that that would be similar to other systems where most likely the places to find exomoons might be around gas giants? I think that's absolutely right. I think um, the current picture of moon formation is that you basically form a disk around the planet that you're forming. And so the bigger the planet is, the bigger that potential well is, and that's going to attract more material to form in its disk. So we expect a bigger disk around bigger planets. And if you have more material, then we expect the process of forming these moons is going to be just as efficient. So if you have more mass, you're going to form more moons. Um, yeah, so I think it's a very similar analogy to around stars. We expect the stars with the biggest disk and the biggest stars to have the most planets because there's just more material there for us to form. Uh, and um, so what, what are your next steps in investigating this system and trying to learn more about the PDS-70 star system? So we really want to understand the gas component of the system. These images are all looking at the large dust grains in it, which is really important because that's sort of the core component of forming moons and planets. But with ALMA, we can also trace the gas. We can look at the chemical complexities in the gas so we can understand what molecules are being delivered to these planets to form their atmospheres. We want to understand how those levels of carbon to oxygen compare to those that we measure in meteorites in our own solar system. We also want to use the gas observations to study the kinematic structure of the disk, so how gas is moving around, how things are being transported from this outer region and onto the planet. So we really want to understand how these materials are being delivered to form their atmospheres and what the chemical complexity of those atmospheres would be. And next question, uh, how, how are you going to do that? Are you going to, um, how so you going to carry can... that out? So we can use ALMA in exactly the same way. So ALMA, when you set it up to observe something, you can choose the frequency of light that you're looking at. So when we're looking at the dust, we look at what's called continuum because the dust emits at a whole range of frequencies. But when we're looking at the simple molecular species, such as carbon monoxide, we know that that uh, molecule will emit light at a very specific frequency. So we can tune our telescope to be very sensitive to that very specific frequency. And then we can map out where this carbon monoxide is how much of it is there and what, how it's moving around. And so with ALMA, we can do this for a whole range of molecules and we can look at a, I think we have something around 30 different molecular species that we can detect in disks. And so we're gonna do the same mapping process for each of these molecules with ALMA to hopefully get similar looking maps as we have for the dust, but for each of these species that we can then build up this very complex picture of what the chemical structure should be.
And finally, last question. Uh, with the you know great new generations of telescopes, you know about to see first light in, in the coming years, including Webb. Um, what what do you how do you hope to be able to use some of these instruments to discover more exomoons? So I think there's going to be two main avenues that's really going to open up to us with these new facilities. Firstly is the sensitivity. So when we go to space, for example, with James Webb, we're no longer looking through the atmosphere. So we're going to be sensitive to much dimmer objects. So we can start to look for smaller mass planets simply because they're dimmer and we wouldn't be able to see them from the ground. Additionally, a lot of the other telescopes are going to allow us to do similar sort of measurements, but at slightly shorter wavelengths. So we're looking in the infrared rather than the submillimeter. This is going to allow us to look more closely in the inner disk where things are a lot hotter. So things will emit at these shorter wavelengths rather than the long wavelengths in the submillimeter. So this is going to allow us to look for these very close-in planets that are more akin to the terrestrial planets in our own solar system that we simply don't have the resolution to look for with current instrumentation. That's fabulous. Thanks so much for taking time to be on the show, Richard. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, and that was Dr. Richard Teague, astrophysicist at the Center for Astrophysics. There will be no show next week on the 24th of August as we're going on vacation. However, we have an amazing guest coming up the following week, so make sure to join us on the Tuesday, the 31st of August, when we're going to welcome uh, Jeff Notkin to the show. He is a two-time Emmy Award-winning host of STEM Journals, and he was also the host of Meteorite Men on the Science Channel. So make sure to join us then. Visit with us each week on Astronomy News with the Cosmic Companion as we bring the cosmos down to Earth and scientists directly into your homes with fun, informative interviews. Subscribe to our VIP newsletter to see every episode of this show one day early. Now, we depend on support from viewers just like you. For ways to help support this program, including VIP subscriptions, please visit thecosmiccompanion.net forward slash support. Please, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep your wonder alive. If you enjoyed this episode of Astronomy News with the Cosmic Companion, please download and share the episode on YouTube, Facebook video, or your favorite podcast provider. Remember, you can watch every episode of this show at thecosmiccompanion.tv. For more details on space and astronomy news, please visit thecosmiccompanion.com or thecosmiccompanion.net. Mm-hmm.